You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. My name's Mark and one of the leaders here at the White House campus. And go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to next week wrap up our series through 1 Thessalonians. We'll then turn our attention to Palm Sunday and Easter. Hopefully you're making plans uh, for that. And then we're going to pick back up and start a series through the second letter uh, to the Thessalonican believers. But I tell you, this is an amazing church that Paul was a part of for just a very short time. We've seen just in three chapters... He's praised them for their faithfulness. They've shared, uh, he shared his gratitude for their love of the scriptures. He's expressed his personal love for them. In fact, there has not been a single word of correction or rebuke. This would have been an amazing group of people to belong to. In fact, I think if they were having a trash pickup day in their city, they would show up. If they were hosting an Easter egg hunt in their community, they would be there. It's an amazing church. But with Timothy's report does come some concerns. And so Paul now in this chapter, he's going to write to them about these concerns that he's been having. And he wants to give some advice to this young group of believers. Because remember, this church has not been in existence very long. Probably one to three months. It's made up from Romans and Greek pagan worshipers. It said men and women, they've all come together for a very short time. But Paul has had nothing But praise for this group. Well, today he's going to give some advice to some new believers. And we like doing this. You know, somebody moves to your town and we're going to be quick to go, Oh, you want to avoid that? Or, hey, here's where you need to go. Or uh, a new kid comes to school and you're going to give them advice. Hey, the Frito pie, yes, stay away from the sausage on the stick. We're not for sure where it comes from. And But we like giving advice. And so that is what Paul is going to do. But I wondered if we had someone come that was a new believer, what would we tell them? What would be the advice that we would give them? And so before I even studied, I wrote down some things that I thought we would say. We'd probably say, hey, find a Bible. Begin reading it. Well, there's this thing called prayer where you talk to God. That's a good thing to do. Uh, Connect with other believers. Find a church to get involved in. Be around them. And we'd probably have a list of things, hey, not to do. Well, Paul's going to give some advice today, probably a little bit different than what we typically would do. And so what I want to do today is draw out three words of advice or three phrases that Paul gives these new believers. So let's pick up 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's the first advice. Look at the first two verses. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk... And to please God, just as you are doing, that you do more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So I would say his first word of advice is this, that your walk must be a priority. So new believers, your walk is important. Because notice what he says, he he asks. This is the polite thing to do. He's going to ask them to think about this, to consider it. But then he says, brothers, urge. He's now raising the urgency. He's raising the intensity. He is pleading with them. Notice what he says. As you received 
from us how you ought to walk. So we know this idea of walk, this, this way we now live our lives. And notice how they learned it. First of all, they learned it. They received this from the instructions of Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke. But also notice how they learned. By watching them. In fact, do you know how most young Christians learn to follow Jesus? By watching other Christians. Yes, instruction, we have to have that. That is important. But it's by imitating or watching other Christians. So then I had this humbling thought that, man, my children, their first view of who God is and what he is like comes from their mom. No, and me. Comes from their, it comes from their parents or grandparents. That's a child's first picture of what God is like. Someone we cannot see, but that's where it usually begins. Then you see this with babies all the time. How does a baby learn to walk? There's a lot of encouragement. Come on, you can do it. There's a lot of trial and error. But I think part of it them has to be them crawling around going, man, that looks like fun. Man, they can sure get somewhere a lot easier. Maybe one day I'll try that. And then our family was gone this week, and uh, we were spending some time uh, in Red River. And uh, we're waiting for everybody to get there, and there's this little baby walking around, and or uh, not walking, being carried around, and it looks up, and it waves like this. And I thought, oh, that's a, that's a special child there. Well, then I got to thinking about it. Why is the baby waving like this? It's because that's what everything looks like to them. And this baby's just imitating what they're seeing. So he says, you learned this. You, you heard our instructions, but you watched us and you are following us in your walk. But notice he's going to say, your walk has a purpose. It says, and to please God. Now, the interesting thing about this, this is not normally what we think about when we uh, think of pleasing someone. We please someone because they have maybe a, some expectations, maybe your sweet grandmother, and you want to do things to please her, to make her happy or proud. But the Greek word for this is arisko, which means to live in agreement with. So Paul is saying we are to walk in a way that pleases Meaning is in agreement with God's purposes, his desires, and his character. But something interesting too. Notice that Paul says walk and to please God. So you walk, we follow, we obey in the hopes of pleasing God. But why would he have to say both? It's because we can actually obey God and not please him. I mean simply look at the life of Jonah. Or you have someone in your life that maybe you've had some issues with or maybe they've had them with you and God lays it in your heart to do something, to show them love and care and we do it, but maybe grudgingly or for all the wrong reasons. So he says you have to be careful that we have to walk and to please God, to live in agreement with him. But I want to pause to make sure we understand something about this. Because I got wrapped up in this early on that if when we come to believe and trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done and for salvation and we begin our Christian life, when we have trusted in him and him alone for salvation, nothing of myself, there isn't anything I could do. It's all because of what he has done and I trust in them. There is nothing else we can do to gain God's favor. There's nothing 
Once you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there isn't anything to gain any more favor of God. He has given you all of the blessings that are in Christ. So I hope a new believer would know that God is completely satisfied. Not in your obedience, but in the obedience in the life of Jesus. And his perfect life and obedience is credited to you. There isn't anything else you can make God love you anymore. In fact, Timothy Paul Jones, one of my mentors, says it this way. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your deeds no longer determine your destiny. And isn't that true? But we can so get wrapped, oh, I've got to do this so that I can get God to love me more. No. From the moment we first trust in Christ, and he is your only hope, God is completely satisfied in you because you are in Christ. But you know what? You'll have days that please God where you'll live in agreement with him, but we never get to boast. And if you're anything like me, you're going to have days where you uh, mess it up miserably to please him. But the good news is there's always grace for that. So when Christ and our deeds or his become ours, they no longer determine our destiny. But notice his words of encouragement. This is an amazing group of people. So he says, walk as we've instructed, as you've learned from us, to please God, live in agreement with him, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He's saying, man, you have, you've started off strong. Now keep doing what you're doing and do more and more of that. You know, it's a reminder to me that the Christian life isn't just for a season, that Christian involvement, church involvement isn't just for a time. This Christian life is this ever-going experience of learning and doing. But then Paul does something. He wants to head off any misunderstandings. He says, for what instructions we gave you, so there's that teaching part, we gave you through Jesus Christ. That Paul says, listen, this isn't my opinion's. This isn't what I think you should do. This is coming from the Lord that we are simply to give you. So his first advice is this, that your walk must be a priority. It must be. But here's the second advice. God's will must be your guide. So before we do this, before we read the next uh, verse, I want you to do something. I only want you to follow the first seven verses or first seven words. Only read those with me. Notice what it says at the beginning of verse 3 and then stop. For this is the will of God. Every ear that was hearing this letter read, had their ears had to perk up. Because, I mean, he's about to talk about and unlock the holy grail of all mysteries. The thing that's probably talked about, searched for, God's will, this mystery of mysteries. And here it is. Your sanctification. That's God's will for those new believers was their sanctification. And I know this is a word, there's lots of definitions out there. And it is this process of God making this new group of believers into holy and pure lives resulting from the change that has happened to them. But this is helpful for me in understanding the idea of sanctification. First of all, it's a standing and then it's a process. That when you come to Christ through faith, by grace, you are transformed into his kingdom, Scripture says. And we stand redeemed and forgiven. 
That's our standing. When that happens, that is true and nothing can change that. But it's also a process because we live in a fallen world in unredeemed bodies. And while we are saved from the penalty of sin, the ever-present power of sin is still a reality that we wrestle with. And so it's also a process. So it's a standing So Paul is talking now about this process. And what does he say about it? God's will is that we would be sanctified. And that is going to be excruciatingly important to remember. And I'm going to show you in just a moment. So here's a question I think we all have to ask. If that's God's will, his desire for these new group of believers, is there sanctification? But is that ours? So Paul says sanctification, this process, it only works when God's will must be our guide. That's the only way that it happens. So Paul, he's just given these new group of Christians two major general words of advice. But then he's going to get real specific. He wants to give them some examples. And you'll notice in the scriptures in verse 3 there, they start with the word that. That's how we know there's three of them. That, or so that, notice the first one. So he's just set up God's will for your life. It's your sanctification. God's will must guide you in that. Your walk is important. And then he says his, his very specific advice is you must abstain from sexual immorality. And I go, Paul, of all the things that you want to give new believers, this is where you start? Seems like deep waters to swim in, Paul, right off the bat. Probably didn't have any children in the room. I don't know. But here's three important things to remember. First of all, we've talked from the very beginning that the moral climate in the Roman Empire was very unhealthy. I mean, Paul is just south in Corinth. He probably only had to look outside his window to see sexual immorality all around him. It was accepted. It was even encouraged as part of worship. So this message from Christ to Paul to them is very countercultural. It's easy to see how these young Christians would have been fighting against the temptation of that culture each and every day because it was encouraged and celebrated. The second thing important to note about this is the word that Paul uses, pornea. And this is a word that encompasses a lot of things. It'd be like if I stood up and said, uh, oh, aircraft. Well, I might mean a helicopter, I might need a Cessna or a jumbo jet. It's this general term. And so Paul is using this because he's talking about any and every form of sexual practice that lies outside God's revealed will. But here's the third one. God knows this and Paul knows this. Why would he choose this? I think this is the number one reason. Why would he start here? It's because there is not an area of our lives that sexual immorality doesn't affect. Our thoughts, our minds, our relationships with others, the things we value, our marriages, parenting, finances, jobs, all of it is affected by that. And Paul knows that. Well, then notice his second that, second specific example, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So this word control, it, it's an interesting phrase that means to, to take possession of. So the truth is, Paul is saying, either we learn to control our bodies and our desires, or they will control us. 
In true self-control, Paul is saying, is a distinction from the unbelieving world. Notice the third that. In verse 6, that no transgress or wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. So he's showing us that no one transgresses or wrongs their brother in this way. That sexual immorality, it affects others. And then he gives those two warning shots. He says, I need you to know, young believers, that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. That God will avenge those who wrong others in this way. He wants them to understand that salvation doesn't grant believers this right to sin without suffering consequences. In fact, in Hebrews, the author tells us that God will judge sexual immorality. And then he lays it out in the end of that, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. That sexual immorality, it goes against God's calling for a new believer. So then look at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That Paul is pointing out that we always have a choice. That you can listen to this warning and trust and follow God or disregard it. So then Paul's going to move now to his kind of third major piece of advice. So first of all, he says, your walk, it must be a priority. It must be important to you. His second one was God's will must be your guide. But here's his third one. God's plan must be your passion. Look at verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, that you have no need for anyone to write to you. Once again, this, this group is excelling at this. He says, we shouldn't have to say anything. You are loving each other well. For you yourselves, you've been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So it isn't just there in Thessalonica. Wherever they are, wherever they're traveling, wherever they're working, man, they are loving others well. Man, you've got these Greeks. You've got pagan Greek worshipers. You've got Romans. You've got this group that hasn't been in existence very long under extreme persecution and they're excelling at loving one another. I think he's showing us that loving others in this way, that is God's plan, that it's taught to us by him, and then we live that out. Well, Paul then gives them the same encouragement. Notice he says at the end of verse 10, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You're doing it, and keep on going. And then he gives them the description of it. I think this is what they're doing. In verse 11, he says, And two, aspire to live quietly. Now, I love a quiet house. I do. But what is he talking about? He means to, to live orderly, to, to be in control. It's this idea of living our lives, not always having to say, Hey, look at me. You live quietly. You're not there for the praise or the accolades of others. And he says, and to mind your own affairs. And that's pretty self-explanatory, huh? But I love this phrase. It means to sit 
in your own shade. You know, we each have ours. We mind our own affairs. It means not always having to share our thoughts and opinions about what others should be doing. It's minding our own business. And to work with your hands as we were instructed you. And that's important because in this time you have Greeks, you have Romans, and they classified everything according to the job you had. And if you had a job where you used your mind, philosophy was really big back then, you, you were an important person. But if you worked with your hands or you tended sheep or you made something, you were thought to be less important. But Paul is saying no matter what you do, even if you work with your hands, your work matters. That work hard. Work hard for the benefit of others. Use whatever energy, creativity you have to benefit others. And then verse 12, he gives us the reason. So that you walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So first Paul says that, men, others are always watching. And that is so true. It didn't take long for me to read a story about Crystal Lachance. Works at a KFC in Oregon. Single mom. Walks to work every day three miles to provide for her and her eight-year-old son. It didn't take long for that manager to notice her faithfulness, notice her gathering her purse, her bag, and walking. But she was faithful, dedicated. He talked about her great attitude, her servant's heart, how hard she worked. Well, one September day, she shows up to work like any other, and she gets called into the office, and she thinks, oh, no, what have I done? Manager walked outside and said, this is yours. And he handed her the keys to a brand new car. The people are always watching. The thing I found, there are numerous examples of this. But the second thing Paul says is you work hard, not always looking to be dependent on others. Work hard because others are watching. They work hard so that you don't have to depend on other people. We're going to get into this next week. And the reason is they believed Jesus was going to return at any moment, which is true. So what did they stop doing? They stopped working. And Paul says, no, that's not what you should do. You work hard so that you don't have to depend on other people. So chapter 4, 1 through 12. Man, Paul has covered lots of ground. So here's the highlights. And I think Paul would say this to us just as he's saying it to them. So he's now not saying your, work, your walk must be a priority. He's saying our walk. It must be a priority. That sanctification must be the priority of every believer. Can you imagine the church if that was actually true? If every believer there, their walk with God to walk in a way that pleases him is in agreement with him, that was a priority? Can you imagine how healthy churches would be? But always remember this. Our walk is, must be a priority. Even more important than that, God is always for you. That he will provide all that you need for your sanctification. That our progression in Christ, it's also an assurance that we belong to him. Because I was one of these kids that I believe received Christ at an early age. I'm not quite for sure. Uh, exactly when that was, but I got into this cycle of always questioning that. To one day, a friend, you know, I was telling him about this. I said, I don't know, I can't ever get this right. I look around and 
I can't seem to do the job everybody else is doing, and I'm just a failure at this, so this must not be true about me. But he stopped me one day and said, well, let me ask you a couple of questions. He said, do you desire the things of God more now than you once did? And I thought, well, in some ways, yes. He says, well, the more that you begin down that process of taking your walk and making a priority, the thing that it does give you, it doesn't change your justification at all. But what it does do, it will bring you a greater assurance of who you belong to. But here's the number one thing about our walk being our priority. If that's going to be true, God's will must be our guide. That what he wills, he will always provide the means and the power for. And if God is for our holiness, guess what? He is going to provide everything we need for that. But so much of the Christian life is learning to die to this, learning to die to self, and learning to give our wills over for his. But the last one is God's plan must be our passion. That when we experience a new birth in Christ, is what happens is he begins to unveil this unique plan for each and every one of us. This unveiling begins at the moment we trust Christ and it will continue until he calls us home or he returns. And part of our sanctification process is understanding and living that out. So here's the thought I want to leave you with. When you think about salvation, these two thoughts came to my mind early this morning. I think, one, it can be a lot like marriage. The moment you enter into this covenant uh, relationship, you're married. And then what happens? You begin living each day and each year, trying then to learn how to live in that reality. We don't just one day wake up, put rings on each other's fingers, and all of a sudden know what there is to do. We learn to live as we are. And I think it's the same thing even in parenting. The moment life is conceived, we're parents. And it's not like all of a sudden we wake up and we know everything to do, but we learn to live in that reality. That The moment we trust in Jesus Christ, you are a Christian you are a believer. And then the rest of this life is learning how to live in that reality. But believers, you know what? You're going to have moments. We're going to have moments where we excel. And then we're going to live in agreement with God's character, his desires, and his wills. But we have nothing to boast in. And we will have moments that we fail miserably. And there's grace for that. That our success and even our failures, it doesn't change our standing. So what do we have to do? We wake up each and every day and we see it as a gift. That today's a gift. It's going to be unlike yesterday. And if tomorrow comes, it'll be different than that one. But today is a gift. The second thing I think we have to do is admit, I don't have what it takes. In and of myself, there's no way. And then to lean hard into all the resources that God provides. In fact, God is so committed to our sanctification that he has put the entire resources of heaven behind it. So see each day as a gift. Admit you don't have what it takes and then lean heavily into those resources. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. 
Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.